0: Genesis chapter 46 is where we will spend our time this evening. Genesis chapter 46, we'll start there and move into the next chapter. Why is it that Jacob's family prospered in the end? Why did he Why did he and they prosper? There's a number of ways that we could answer that question. We could say that God was in control and God had planned it, and therefore they prospered, and that would be a correct response. The scriptures bear that out. We could also say that it was because of the sins of jacob's sons the the reason one of the reasons or at least the catalyst to Joseph prospering for on behalf of his family was the sins of his brothers and and they hated him and sold him into slavery and and obviously um this resulted in his rise to power and that answer would also be correct it was um in some sense, a result of their sin. Or we could say that it was because of Joseph's wisdom. The reason that Jacob's family was protected or it prospered in the end was because of Joseph's wisdom and his confidence in God's sovereignty. And that answer also would be correct. we spent a considerable, a considerable amount of time focusing on Joseph's focus on God's sovereignty, his confidence in God's control over all things, particularly in chapter 45, when he reveals himself to his brothers and he said, you know, you sold me into Egypt, but it was God that sent me here, right, to preserve a remnant for himself. But tonight, we're going to consider another attribute of Joseph that brought about God's preservation of his family, and that is his wisdom, Joseph's wisdom. His wisdom is is on display here in this passage that we'll look at tonight. But this is not new to Joseph. We're not, we shouldn't be surprised that Joseph is acting wisely here, because when he was working for Potiphar, he was a man of wisdom. We know that because he rose all the way to the top of service for Potiphar, and and he had unmatched, in many ways, wisdom. His wisdom was further seen in in his incident with Potiphar's wife, right? That he he recognized the potential dangers of him falling into sin with. This woman, and he fled from it. then his wisdom is seen, and how he handles other situations like the warden of the prison, and of course that led to him being second in command, and then of course him interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh that that required great wisdom for him to to uh, understand the things of God and then report them to this pagan king. Now, God can work apart from wisdom. I often mention that God can work unilaterally and he many times does but for the most part in general god works through means and so in order to preserve joseph's family jacob's family god uses means and specifically here we're going to see the means of joseph's wisdom and and for us the wisdom that we acquire from god not just about you know ordinary things going on in life but real spiritual wisdom that comes from the Scriptures. As we attain this and and use it, God uses us and that wisdom to accomplish His purposes. So we're going to uh, read a little bit of a lengthy section here, chapter 46, verse 31, through the next chapter, verse 27. So let me begin reading in chapter 46, verse 31, and try to follow along as we as we do. This is the word of God. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now. But we and our fathers uh, that but excuse me. We have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. And then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan, and behold, they are in the land of Goshen. He took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please, let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Sell your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, and put them in in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many years have you lived? So Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojourning are one hundred and thirty. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my uh, my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. And so Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had ordered. Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. Now there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt, in the land of Canaan, for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt, in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. And then Joseph said, Give up your livestock, and I will give you food for your livestock since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys. And he fed them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year was ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent, and the cattle are my Lord's. There is nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before before your eyes, both we and our land, by us? and our land for food, and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every Egyptian sold his field, because the famine was severe upon them. And thus the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other, only the land of the priests they did not buy, for the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them, therefore they did not sell their land. And then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is a seed for you, and you may sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, for seed of the field, and for your food, and for those of your household's and as food for your little ones. And so they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of My Lord and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt valid to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. Only the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. God is the one who ultimately preserves his people. It's God who does it. But he does it through means. And here we see him doing it through a wise leader. We're going to see Joseph's wisdom on display here uh, in this passage. First, we see Joseph's wise leadership leads to Pharaoh's favorable response. And that is uh, beginning in chapter 46, verse 31, through chapter 47, verse 12. First in verse four verses here thirty one through thirty four Joseph prepares his brothers to go before Pharaoh. Now, now why prepare them? They're they're big boys right? They can handle themselves. Why why do you have to prep them before going into Pharaoh? Remember this is no small thing, is it? I mean they they their lives were held in the balance depending on how Pharaoh responded here. If he said no you you're not living in this land. I'm sorry. Turn around and go home. Um, Of course, God was really in control of it all. We know that. But keep in mind that God works through means. And so that's what I think Joseph understood. He understood that God works through means. So I'm going to prepare my brothers to stand before this man of great power, the Pharaoh. I think there are at least three reasons why Joseph prepared them to go before them. Number one, to ease Pharaoh's biases. Pharaoh was a biased man. Turn back to chapter 43, along with really all the other Egyptians, chapter 43, verse 32. I've pointed this verse out before. In fact, I think I did last week, but I'll do it again. Chapter 43, verse 32. So they served Him by Himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with Him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. So, notice those words there, loathsome to the Egyptians. They don't like eating with Hebrews. That is a despicable thing. And we see that again in chapter 46, verse 34. In our passage, chapter 46, verse 34, "...you shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd..." doesn't say every Hebrew shepherd, but every shepherd is loathsome to Egyptians. So, they got a couple strikes against them standing here before Pharaoh. They're going to be loathsome in his sight. And so, Joseph recognizes that and he wants to ease those biases that Pharaoh's going to have. He also wants to ease, secondly, ease Pharaoh's fears. Joseph knew that, that Pharaoh might fear them overtaking Egypt. This is what we'll look at here when we get to chapter 47. And so he wants to ease that that sense of fear like these guys are going to, to come and, and take us. They're going to overtake us. We're not going to allow that to happen. So turn around and go home or or, or whatever. But... That's the second reason I think, and the third reason is for Joseph to put his brothers in a position so that they could prosper, not just survive. Uh, Joseph could have, you know, brought them into the city and uh, had them be a part of the Egyptian culture and just kept feeding, kind of like the 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 priests were provided for. They had an allotment. I mean, Joseph could have done that, right, with his position of power. But instead, he wants to do more for them than just allow them to survive. He wants them to prosper in the land. This is going to become significant when we get to the book of Exodus, somewhere down the road, that, that this is going to be a great people growing up to the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, Israel, Israelites, that is. And that's what Joseph had in mind. He's thinking long-term, making these guys prosper, making his family prosper. So so Joseph's using wisdom here, preparing them to go before Pharaoh. Notice the request here, the the actual formal request here in verses 1 through 6. Um, Pharaoh grants their request. They say, we want to live in the land of Goshen. Um, Pharaoh, remember in chapter 45, verses 16 through 20, had already promised this. He said, go back and get your brothers, get your family and their households, bring them back, and they can live in the best of my land. They can live in the land of Goshen. But, so if he already promised it, why are they going back and asking permission? Okay, this is what we would call a formal agreement now. Okay? Pharaoh had made the promise, but now here's the formal agreement. I'm going to say to you, you can live there. And now uh, Pharaoh indeed does give them their request. But notice in verse 2 how many people Joseph brings before Pharaoh. He took five men from among his brothers. Why not all 11 of them? Why not all 11 brothers? Why only 5? And this speaks to that second reason of why Joseph brought them before Pharaoh and prepped them to, to talk to Pharaoh. And that is to ease Pharaoh's fears. Think about, about this from Pharaoh's perspective. Joseph is a man who was beyond his ears. A man of great wisdom. Who rose to power very quickly. If you consider, I mean, he's only, you know, early 30s here. And he's now in a position of second in command of all of Egypt. Joseph comes and brings all 11 brothers, imagine if he did, brings all 11 brothers before you, the Pharaoh, and you're thinking, if these brothers are on par with Joseph with regard to their ability and their wisdom, and I'm in big trouble because they're going to take us over as a people, and so Joseph is trying to calm. He recognized the potential fears that Pharaoh can have. That these guys may have alter, ulterior motives. They're not coming here to survive. They're coming to here to overtake us as Egyptians. It so only brings in five. Maybe he picked the scrawniest of the of the bunch. I'm not sure. It doesn't say who who stood there before the Pharaoh, but. But Pharaoh responds to their request. Apparently, he was eased by what they intended to do. They weren't planning to come in and overtake them through force, through through battle or something. Notice verse 6. The land of Egypt, Pharaoh says, is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And, and, and he goes one, a step beyond, if you know any capable men among them, then put them in charge of my livestock, he says to Joseph. So, So here you go. Here's your request. You wanted the land of Goshen? It's yours. And the land of Goshen is important because it's a a grazing area. It's a great place for men who are shepherds. And uh, so they get the best of the land. And Pharaoh goes one step further and says, "You, you got anybody that's really good at taking care of livestock? I want them in charge of my livestock. Now this doesn't seem like a huge thing, but notice verse 15. When Joseph acquires all the livestock in, in the, uh, the, the, uh, the area, basically, when the money was all spent, verse 15, in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, and all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. And then Joseph said, Give up your livestock, and I'll give you food for your livestock since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys, and he fed them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. Every single person in the Egyptian region brought their livestock to Joseph and handed it over to him. This was their payment for food for another year. This is how they were going to survive for one more year. The only person that didn't do that, the only people that didn't do that, were the priests. As we'll see, they received a special allotment. So, so So what Pharaoh is doing here in chapter 47, verse 6 is, I'm giving you control of all my livestock. And what he doesn't know is how large that is going to be. So this is going to be a huge endeavor for one of Joseph's brothers. In verses 7-10, through 10, Pharaoh greets Jacob. And Jacob shows wisdom here as well. And this this part here is is not easy to understand unless you think about it in terms of what God has been doing in the book of Genesis. Because at first read, it seems like Joseph is... Submitting himself to Pharaoh, doesn't it? Right. Look at verse seven. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Notice verse ten. And right before he's leaving, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. So, so what is he doing? Is he bowing down, doing a little circumflect here, and and oh, great Pharaoh, I bless you. Okay, that, that may be what it seems like at first read, but and. Or maybe you know this. Maybe this is just a normal greeting. You know, bless you, like we say when, when someone sneezes or something. No, that's not what's going on here. Um, I want you to notice that Joe, Jacob blesses Pharaoh when he comes in, verse seven, and before he leaves. And so we need to think about what this blessing is. Is this submission on the part of Jacob? Is this a normal greeting? And I think the answer can be found in chapter twelve. So why don't you turn there with me? Chapter twelve always good to see the big picture here, of not to get too lost in the details that we miss the big picture of what God, what God is doing. And I think this is what's happening here. Something that had been uh, promised by God to Abraham's descendants. This is a promise given to Abram when he's first called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Doesn't this make sense? Because who is it that generally blesses another person? Just think about this in general, not necessarily with the patriarchs, but who is it that blesses another person? There are times when the psalmists talk about us, you know, blessing the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, right? But generally, when you see blessing happening, it it is from a superior to an inferior, right? Where God blesses his people. God here blesses Abraham, and he promises to Abraham that. Abraham, I'm going to bless those who bless you. Okay, so now turn back to chapter 47, and we need to think about who the superior is and who the inferior is. At first read, it's like Jacob's the inferior, right? He's bowing down to Pharaoh and and, and submitting himself to Pharaoh. But but actually what Jacob's doing is he's passing on a, a promise that has been given to him by God. God says, I will bless you, Jacob, and I will bless those who bless you. Here you go, Pharaoh. Here's a portion of that blessing that comes from God. And this is a great step of faith by Jacob. Because I think that if Jacob had this meeting 40 years earlier, he would probably have handled it differently. Don't you? He might have schemed his way to get what he wanted. Okay, I want to get this land of Goshen... What do I need to do to manipulate Pharaoh to get him to a place where he he is forced to give us the land, right? No. God has blessed me and He's promised to bless those who bless me. So I'm going to bless Pharaoh here. I'm going to give him a a sense of God's grace. And um, the... The result of this is that Pharaoh is blessed, isn't he? He's blessed even despite this severe famine that's going on. He receives all the money in the land. He receives all the livestock in the land. And then we'll see one final thing that he's going to receive in the land. And we'll, we'll look at that here in the next several verses. I think Jacob has grown up. He's older. He's wiser. He's more confident in God's sovereignty than he was before. He's not fearful of Pharaoh. He, he approaches him and blesses Pharaoh. And he knows that God is in this. And I think Pharaoh recognizes Jacob's great position. That he is a man of respect because of, for one, his years. The Egyptians would highly respect a person of, great, uh, of a number of years. And so that's why he asks here in these verses, how old are you? How many have been your days? And what's interesting, I I think, and we'll make application of this at the end, is is in verse 9. Jacob's response. He said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of the sojourning. Jacob gives a sobering response. What does he say? My, my days have been few and unpleasant, or as other translations, few and evil. They're filled with trouble, is the idea there. Few in the sense of 130, that sounds like a long time. But in comparison, notice at the end of the verse, he's comparing himself to his father, Isaac, and his grandfather. Isaac lived till he was 180, and Abraham lived till he was 175. So in comparison to them, my days are few, only 130, and they've been they've been full of trouble. They're unpleasant. And much of that
1: we could say He brought upon
0: Himself because of all of His scheming and conniving. His conflict with His brother that didn't have to happen. God had already promised that He would receive the blessing, but He had to go and, and deceive His brother and, and cause years of conflict. He had conflict with Laban, right? He had inner family conflict with these Probably as a result of these multiple wives and the favoritism and all sorts of other things going on with his family. And so he says, My years are, are unpleasant. Not that, you know, he didn't see that God was in control, but but in comparison to what they could be, they were full of trouble. In verses eleven and twelve, Joseph, through his wisdom, provides for his family. So he settles them there and gives them everything they need, basically, for His father, his brothers, and all their households. And then in verses 13 through 26, we see that Joseph's wise leadership leads to great wealth for Pharaoh. And Joseph receives or acquires three things for Pharaoh's possession. Number one, he collects all the money in the land, verses 13 and 14. They come, we don't have any more food, we don't want to die. We're at your mercy. We're bringing you our our money, and and Joseph acquires all the money in the land. And then, um, then in verses 15 through 17, he acquires the second thing, and that is all the livestock in the land. Joseph gathers all the livestock in the land in exchange for food. I'm going to give you food for one more year. Now, Joseph's not an exacting person, an unmerciful leader here. He's simply being fair and, and being careful with the resources that have been entrusted to him by God and by Pharaoh here. And so he says, listen, I'll, I'll be happy to give you another year's worth of food. And by the way, just so we know that, that Joseph's not being exacting or cruel here, did you notice how they responded? When, when Joseph took them in as servants, they say, you know, you saved our lives, verse 25. This is after they give up the, the deed to their land they say you have saved our lives thank you so much for saving our lives they recognize that their land was not the most important thing their livestock, their finances were not the most important thing but their, their survival was and so Jacob was, or Joseph I should say is was being merciful here not exacting or cruel so Joseph collects all the money in the land, all the livestock in the land and then verses 18 and 19 all the land in the land right? He takes all the land except for, I should say verses 18 through 26, He takes all the land except for the land of the priests. The people come, and here's what their offer is. Listen, we we ran out of money again. All that money you gave us for our livestock that we used to buy grain and things from you, it's all gone. So here's what we're offering you. Take our land and our bodies. We'll give ourselves as slaves to you, but Jacob doesn't do that. He doesn't take them as slaves. He simply takes their land. In exchange for more food, and he puts on that land a tax, a tax of 20 percent. Um, he removes them to the city, verse uh, verse 18 says, "When that year was ended, they came to him and said, "We will not hide from you, my Lord, that our money is all spent, and the kettle are my lords. There's nothing left for my Lord, except our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, Buy us and our land for food?" And then verse 20, Joseph bought, bought all the land of Egypt for every Egyptian sold his field because the famine was severe. And then uh, he he exacts this one-fifth tax on them. This was not a new tax. Um, in fact, this is, we had already seen this in chapter 41, verse 34. Did you realize that in the times of great abundance, when you had the seven years of prosperity before the seven years of famine, that... Joseph wisely enacted a tax on the people of 20%. So in those times of great prosperity, 20% of it had to come to, to uh, the leadership there of Egypt. And so he basically continues this thing and just says, listen, hand over the deed to your land. It'll be ours, but you're allowed to work on it, and you can get 80% of that, of what you harvest. That's yours. You keep it. And the rest will come to us, to, to, the, to the land of Egypt. And amazingly, you know it seems like, oh, this is really stiff. How could you do this, Joseph? But, but this is something that they agreed to, and were, in, uh, were, we're heartily in agreement with, verse 25. They were happy that their lives now were saved, because they recognized the alternative was death. They're not coming, you know, demanding a handout. Look at all the things that we've done for the country of Egypt. You know you owe us. We're entitled. No, they they come and are thankful to to just be able to live another few years. Now, I say that Joseph collected all the land in the land, but not really all the land. It was most of the land because the priests were given a special allotment by Pharaoh. And this kind of uh, pictures for us what's going to happen when the Mosaic Law is put in place and when the land is actually acquired, the land of Canaan, where the priests will have their own little properties of land all over the place. And they will live off of, uh, off of the land, really. And, um, but they don't really have a full inheritance like, like the others. So Joseph's wise leadership leads to uh, a protection and preservation of his own family, a prosperity for Pharaoh, and then finally, his wise leadership leads to uh, this great prosperity. So first preservation, and then. Prosperity for Pharaoh, but then prosperity for his family. Verse 27. Chapter 47, verse 27. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen. And they acquired a property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. Israel here don't think the the people of Israel... This is simply the name given to Jacob at this point. No, They're not called a nation of Israel... Until later, I think really until we get to the book of Exodus after Jacob's dead. But while he's alive, he's referred to most of the rest of his life as Israel. Kind of switches back and forth on occasion. But so so when you see this here that Israel was provided for, that's talking about Jacob. And so the result of Joseph's wise leadership is that God provides for his people through this wise leadership by uh, preserving his family and prospering. Pharaoh, blessing those who blessed them, and then providing or prospering for his own family. In this passage, we see again, and this will be a, just two points of application tonight. First, we see that we must trust God because he is faithful to his promises. I hope you don't get tired of me... Uh, saying that. And I'm, I'm not just uh, you know, running out of things to say. These, these are what the Scriptures are saying. And I'm trying to point out to you, you know, where God is, is emphasizing that we need to continue to trust God. And if you don't think this matters, you know, just go through life a little bit longer and you'll see that the most important thing to do is to trust in God. Specifically, that God has promised us something and that He will bless His people and and for, for Joseph, there's a clear indication that God's hand is in this. That He's going to bless those who, who bless them. So we must trust God because He is faithful to His promises. And the second point of application is really a smaller point in the text. It's not the main point of the text. I think the main point is we need to trust God and, and we can be used by God by being wise. But the second point is one that I don't think we should overlook and that is that we can't waste our lives. Don't waste your life. When Jacob is asked about how old he is, he responds that his days are, remember, few and what? Unpleasant or evil. My days are few and evil. And I don't think Jacob is in depression here, not being pessimistic or trying to pick a fight with God. Come on, my days are, are ridiculously unpleasant. I think he was just simply being honest about life when he was asked about it. And at the end of the that the end of it all he could look back yes on the great grace that he received from God that had been poured out on him and that he was able to pass on to others but also that when he looked back on his life he knew that he could have done more for God he could have done more i think that he he had some regrets here because he had so much trouble in his life much of which as i said he brought upon himself now understand what i'm saying it is never never a waste to spend our lives serving god that's not what i'm saying but rather it is a waste when we don't spend all of our lives serving god okay that's the idea here jacob recognized that the greatest way that he could use his life was to spend all of it for God. And when he looked back on it, he realized that, yes, I have served God. I have seen God's grace in my life, but I haven't used all of my life for it because I was so busy scheming, trying to accomplish things my own way. I didn't learn that first point that I mentioned of our application, which is to trust God for His promises. I was very much like my father and my grandfather before me. Yeah, God used me in lots of ways in the times that I did trust Him. But, but most of the time, God used me when I, was, when I was wicked. And I wish I would have done more. My days were full of trouble. When it comes to decisions that we have to make in our lives, we tend to be very much self-centered as if we are at the center of our own universe that it, that we exist for ourselves so when we have a decision that faces us we ask questions like you know maybe it's something that's potentially sinful or evil can i do this is this permissible is this something that i can do but the question should be does god want me to spend my energy and my life on this activity is this something that god wants me to do Or, you know, when when God becomes the center of our lives, when we are thinking about Him as the center of our lives, then we say with Paul, I will happily spend my life for your souls and be spent. Be expended. Be used all the way up for the sake of your souls. Speaking of the Corinthians. I'd be happy to do that. So what I I would say to you is that And to myself, we we should not waste our lives on spending it on ourselves. Now you might think, but I've already wasted a lot of my life. It's too late. And I would suggest to you that it's never too late to stop wasting your life. It's never too late to start serving God. Think of Nicodemus. Never too late to start serving God. Think of Paul. It's never too late to stop wasting your life. Think of the thief on the cross. It's never too late to serve God and to stop wasting your life. So don't wait until the end of your life. And when someone asks you about your life, you look back on it like Jacob and say, my days are few and unpleasant. Not that God wasn't in any of my days, but that I didn't use them all the way that I could have used them. Because I was so concerned about filling up the pleasures of my life with things and, and resources and activities and recreation. It's never too late to stop wasting your life. So, so what can you do now? This is, make this really personal. What can you do now to affect change so that you will not be wasting your life? What ways are you wasting your life right now? What kind of things need to be moved to the periphery so that God can become the center of your life? Because when God is at the periphery, when God's on the outside looking in, then all that we care about is ourselves and our own desires, and often those are sinful desires. Sometimes they're good desires, though. Sometimes they're, they're good desires. But when we remove the best for our lives, God and His purposes, for something that's only good? And we've actually done ourselves and God a disservice. Maybe you're thinking, but I I don't know what the outcome's going to be. What happens if I seek to give all of my life to God, not waste my life, and in the end, something terrible happens? I maybe come to the end of my life and I say I wish I would have had more fun. I wish I would have spent more of my time on myself or what happens at the end of my life if it's it's full of misery and pain because i chose to serve god with my life what happens if my life is ended quickly what happens if i die because i spent myself for god we don't know the outcome do we but that's part of living by faith it is trusting god even when we don't especially maybe i should say especially when we don't know the outcome Consider the three young Hebrews who were commanded to bow down to the idol. Did they know that they were going to be able to stand up in the middle of the fire and be able to be spared from it? Did they know that? No, the text makes that clear. They say to King Nebuchadnezzar, we know, we know this, that our God can save us from the fire. But they don't stop there. But if not... We still are not going to bow down to your terrible reconstruction of yourself. We're not going to do that. Why? Because there's something more important here. And that is God and His purposes for our lives. We don't know what's going to happen to us. And we know that He can save us and that He can do great things through us. But if He doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to Him, to this false idol. We're not going to waste our lives running from our fears. We're not going to waste our lives satisfying our own sinful desires. We're, we're going to spend it on God. And that means we're going to spend it on God even if it means being spent to death. And I mean that in a physical way that we may have to give up our bodies for the sake of God's purposes, but also financially, emotionally, that we may have to give ourselves up Spend ourselves to death. And if that's the case for us to accomplish God's purposes, then so be it. We will not have come to the end of our life and say, my days were few and unpleasant. Only one life, it soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Paul lived this way. When he came to Christ, he didn't know that when his life would end. He didn't know how his life would end. In Acts twenty twenty three, he said that the Holy Spirit testified to him that in every city imprisonment and in, and afflictions awaited him. How many of us are going to walk into those cities if we know imprisonment and affliction awaits us? But but instead of quitting, instead of sitting on the sideline hoping some other hero steps up and takes our place. Instead of comparing ourselves to other Christians, well, they don't have it nearly as bad as I have it, or I could have it, right? They seem to have it pretty easy. I wish I could be a Christian like that. I think I could serve God pretty good if I had that much money. And that that few of problems... No, instead Paul gets up, he goes right into the city and proclaims the name of Christ. I'm going to reach these cities for the sake of the name. And if that means that I'm spent... I have to spend myself and so be it. Now, he wasn't inviting persecution. He wasn't praying for affliction that it would come on him. He wasn't asking for trouble, but he knew that God had a mission for him to accomplish, to carry the Gospel to the Gentiles. And if that meant that he would be treated like a criminal, then fine. He was happy to do it. I'm going to spend myself, spend my life for God. Don't waste your life I want to recommend to you a book by that same title, Don't Waste Your Life, by John Piper. You can get this for a few dollars at the bookstore over here on 14 and John R. You can purchase an audible version of this, an audio book of this. If you do a lot of traveling, I would recommend it to you. Much of this last point was drawn from this book. And it's full. this book is full of biblical pearls of wisdom. One of the great things you're going to find about Piper is he he often points you to the Scriptures. The the basis for his understanding of how we ought to live comes from the Scriptures. And I would encourage you to read it. It's not a hard read. It's not a long read. Uh, It would be very valuable for you. Here's Jonathan Edwards' resolves. You remember him at the age of 17. He gave these several resolves. These are the things that I resolved to do. Here's one of his resolves, number 17: Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I came to die. That is, that I come to die, I am not going to say I don't want to be able to say at the end of my life I wasted some of my life. Okay. Obviously, we can't control anything that's already happened in the past. But from here on out, I am resolved, Jonathan Edwards says, I am resolved not to get to the end of my life and say I wasted that time. My main point of this application is to get you to think about your life as a Christian. What do you want your life for Christ to look like in the end? You can't go back and change what's already happened in the past, can you? But can you change or affect change for what's going to happen tomorrow? Is there any way you can learn from the past of the wasted times and look to tomorrow and see how can I move forward without doing it the same way that I've already done it? Wasting a lot of my time not spending it for Christ but spending it on myself. What kind of life is God calling you? What kind of risks is God calling you to take? Whatever the life that is, that He's calling you to live for Him, it starts with small baby steps of change. Okay? That doesn't mean you need to go out from this service and say, alright, that's it. I'm, I'm getting up and move my family to Africa. We're going to be missionaries. That may be what God is doing in your heart. I'm not sure. But, but generally speaking, it is just make one small step here. Okay? When I talked about wasting your life, what was it that specifically came to your mind What way have you wasted your life and what can you change now going forward? Take that small step now in your mind and then take it in action tomorrow when you start your week. Small acts of spending yourself for God. Don't come to the end of your life and say, my days are few and troubled like Jacob did. Rather, live your Christian life completely like Paul did so that at the end he could say this, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Don't waste your life. Let's pray. Father, it certainly is easy, I admit and confess that it is easy to get caught up in the mundane things of life, the things that don't really have any significance one year from now, five years from now. Certainly not in eternity. And those are the things that that I personally can spend my time with the most. And so I pray that You give us wisdom, like Joseph, to be able to discern the times, to be able to discern what You want for our lives and what kind of changes we need to make. Lord, I don't want to get to the end of my life and say, you know, there's so many things I should have done differently. There's so much more time I should have spent with You. There's so much more time I should have spent serving You. But I want to come to the end of my life and say, I've finished my course and I've kept the faith. Help me, Lord. Help each person in here. Give us practical ways in which we can do this. Point out, areas in our lives, help people in our family to help move us in this direction towards You, making You at the center of what we do. Lord, we we know that that we have a long way to go, but we have seen how faithful You have been to us all the way. When we are faithful and when we are unfaithful and and we're amazed at it. We want to see that more. We want to see Your purposes accomplished through us, not so that we can get the glory, but so that You can be praised. The more and more people would would praise You. Help us to do this, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.